One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine, where we take an inside look at an author's creative day. This week it's with Harriet Klein, an award-winning short story writer who has just published her debut, This Shining Life. We talk about the monster that helps her write, also about her journey to publication, and how it all started with the death of a dear friend and how after that she lost the one thing that she had learned from the time. Oh, this is awful. I've lost my authenticity. It's like I've, I've lost my friend and now I'm losing this, this, you know, the one thing that he gave me I'm lo- losing as well. Um, and it was, you know, that was really upsetting. And I was thinking about that and then I was watching all the people around me grieving for this friend. And I started to notice that I thought, actually, this is happening to everyone. That as we're going through the grieving process, we are all sort of losing some sense of what that really means and what it means to be alive. And then it was a little bit after that that I thought, I want to write about this and I want to write about the different ways that people grieve and the different ways that people are truly alive. There is more on the way with Harriet Klein in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Welcome along. My name's Dan Simpson. Thanks for finding us, for following, streaming, sharing. However you've reached us, managed to be here. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's writer's routine. It's where we take a look inside an author's working day. How do they plan it? How do they get stuff done? How do they take the initial seed of an idea and make it a full-on oak tree of a beastly story? Or some less cliched metaphor. It's all of that. It's on the way. This week, we're with Harriet Klein. She's an award-winning short story writer. Ghost won the Hissack short story competition. Chest of Drawers won the London Magazine short story competition. She's had stories published online in journals and on on BBC Radio as well. And her debut is out. It's called This Shining Life. It's all about Ruth, who loses her husband, Rich, and sets out on a mission with her son, Ollie, to solve the puzzles that he left for them in a bid to discover the meaning of life. Now, it's funny, it's beautiful, and it's all about love and loss. Uh, We talk about how it came about, how she tried to find the meaning of life herself whilst writing it, 
and also why her part-time work as a registrar really inspires stories. You can hear how it changed from being many short stories to one novel, and we talk about the monster that helps her get to work in the morning. It's all on the way, and we start things off, as we always do, with what Harriet Klein sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. I see out the window into the street where I can watch my neighbours putting their bins out um, or just walking down the street with their children or whatever, uh, which is very enjoyable distraction. I also see a large amount of musical instruments all the way from the floor to the ceiling on a shelf um, of one wall. So... um, they, they are, when I do Zooms, they're very carefully out of shot because uh, they're nothing to do with me. They're my partner's musical instruments. And then the other side, which is always in shot when I do a Zoom, is all my books and my writing things. So you've got the books, you've got the instruments uh, around you. What else is there that's, um, that, that's quite inspirational? Well, what I do have is a monster Um, which is made of an old leatherette, sort of old leatherette coat, really, and a car sponge. It's got a very sad, fierce face. Um, And this is a monster that I actually dreamt about once, um, swimming in a pond. Um, And I described it to my sister and I said, you know, this is like the monster of my unconscious in in the dark beneath the dark waves of the pond. And when I next visited my sister, she'd actually made this monster. <laughs> um, so, and it's, it's really scary thing to look at with its sort of bulging eyes. But I do find it really inspirational because it just reminds me that there is an unconscious and that it does guide you through your writing work. The monster's there. Run me through your desk, the setup that you've got. Am I, am I talking... Um, you know, big computer, something that NASA might use to get people to Mars? Or is it like a typewriter? Are you writing by hand? What's going on there? Right. So what I've got is a really wobbly table. Um, It's a pub table. It's round um, and it's got a big crack all the way down the centre. So if I press too hard, it kind of almost threatens to snap. Um, But it fits in this very small space that I work in, which is actually at the bottom of the stairs. Um, And so it's a very small table. It's got a laptop on it. And there's also a big pile of notebooks and scraps of paper where I've scribbled on things. There's a jug of pens and it's kind of ink leaking down the edge of the jug. If I were to open up one of those notebooks... Uh, would I understand any of it? Is it random scrawlings that's kind of just for you? Yeah, you probably wouldn't be able to read the writing because I can't. And they are absolutely random scrawlings. Sometimes um, to get myself going, I write with my left hand. Um, I might even write with my eyes closed. Um, So I end up writing on top of each other. I try to, as I write... Um, if I'm doing really random work that's just to get me going in the morning or, or in the start of a session, I try to loosen my hand on the pen and loosen my shoulder as much as I can. So the writing gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more overlapping. And it's less about what can be read, but more about me allowing myself to make whatever mark needs to be made on the page. I've spoken to quite a number of different writers now. 
and I'm aware that they've all got different tricks to make themselves work of a day. Uh, I've never heard those. I'll, I'll be honest. Where, where did that come from? Why do you think you need these little tricks just to start working on a story that you clearly want to tell because you want to get it out there? Why, why do you need to trick yourself to, to start every day, do you think? Um, so it's partly morning pages, uh, which is the Julia Cameron uh, routine where you just write whatever comes to you first thing, like a free writing thing. But I found that that got very um, repetitive. Um, I got very much into the habit of writing the same thing about how I'd slept and what I felt like now. Um, so what I felt was really important was to allow um, my body some space as well as my head. So it wasn't just about what my head's experiencing. And I felt that the more I allow my body the space to express itself on the page, which is the loosening of my hand, the loosening of my shoulder, the, the need to kind of maybe scribble very angrily or press hard if I'm, you know, or press loosely, whatever my body's telling me, it kind of allows me to be more present with where I am, with whatever is flowing through me as, um, as an emotional experience. So um, it also takes away this pressure to, to write something good because I'm, I'm scribbling, I'm writing something rubbish um, and that doesn't matter. I'm just getting it flowing until I'm ready to write the thing that I need to write um, in terms of the book that I'm working on. Now, you, you've published a novel, you've written many other things for, for different bits and bobs. Uh, how much do you still need this 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 kind of trick to this game to get you going of a day if you didn't do that would you would you kind of tense up would you be very anxious about it um i think i need it probably about 50 percent of the time if i've been really lucky and i've written something good the day before and i know where i'm going next day then yeah i can sit down and just start um but most of the time that doesn't happen to me or at least 50% that doesn't happen to me. So I will need it just to get something going. And if there's any problem that I'm working on with uh, the thing that I'm writing, it does really help shift something. So I think sometimes I forget to do it um, and I think, oh, well, I'm editing. I don't need to do that. I know exactly what I'm working on. But actually, even when I'm editing it, it somehow brings a certain looseness and uh, freedom to what I'm doing. Some people can be quite precious about notebooks. Talk me through yours. <laughs> I'm not precious about them. I do prefer them not to look horrible. I do like, I mean, my favourite notebooks uh, don't have lined paper, but they're really expensive for some reason. Um, and it's just not worth spending huge amounts of money on something I'm just going to scribble in. Um, so what I quite often do is I stick postcards of um, inspiring places or beautiful things onto one that isn't particularly attractive, uh, but that was very cheap. I scribble in them. I let them get grubby at the bottom of my bag. So I'm really not precious about them. Um, and then what I do is I sometimes read through anything that was good that I can actually read. And then I'll sellotape in a piece of paper sticking out the top saying, you know, extract about 
dogs or something that I think's good so that I know where to go back and find that thing. So they end up looking extremely scruffy, actually. Uh, you, you've taken us through the inspirational things that are around you. If I were to, uh, if I were to come into your writing room and, and plot myself down on your, um, your slightly rickety pub table, uh, would I have any clue as to what story you were telling? Is there uh, a plan anywhere? Post-it notes, perhaps on the walls, a big a spreadsheet somewhere? Um, you might. There might sometimes be a big rolled-up piece of newspaper, uh, not newspaper, wallpaper, if there's. Um, if I'm really in the middle of a project, which would kind of show all my different timelines or my different characters, occasionally a little map of a key location. But I tend not to have that showing. I tend to have that rolled up and hidden behind a shelf somewhere so that I can refer to it. But I think if there's too much reference to what I'm doing around me, um, then I just, it makes me do the same thing again and again. I quite like to kind of refer to it, but give myself the freedom not to keep sticking to whatever I've decided on my big lists. Okay, so if I've got a writing day, um, what I tend to do is get up, get a hot water to drink. I mean, this is a good day because a lot of the time this doesn't actually happen, but I get my... Mistaken as red, you're okay. Yes, <laughs> so I'll... Um, get my hot water um, and I'll go straight to the desk. So that might be by seven o'clock, I will be um, dressed but not washed with a hot water and I'll be doing my scribbles. Um, and then the scribbles take me up to time for breakfast, shower, and then I think I'm ready to write. So let's say it's going really well. Um, I might write um, on the laptop for maybe two hours um, and, you know, get something down. I tend to try not to edit too much in that period because it's my lovely, fresh, clean period of new stuff writing. Um, and by then, um, after about two hours, I think I start to feel at the front of my forehead a sort of soggy soft tiredness so that's really the point at which i might get up and do some exercise go for a walk or quite often actually just do some boring chore in the house uh, just to kind of stop thinking um and then i might do another hour of fiddling around with what i've just written reading it um maybe writing notes on why it doesn't work, maybe generating a bit more material. Um, but that I'll find that I get really tired again after about an hour. So then there'll be a lunch, which I'll tell myself I'm going to spend half an hour on and inevitably uh, spend an hour on. Um, and I Ideally, I would quite like to read as well, perhaps for half an hour after lunch, but quite often that turns into oh, well, maybe I'll just look at Twitter. Oh, I wonder if there's anything going on on Facebook. Um, but what I've learned to do with that is to put, if I, as soon as I go near Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, put a timer on and make sure that, that I'm not on it for more than 15 minutes because it will just get sucked away. And then the afternoon after lunch, that tends to be editing only um, if I've got anything to edit Um if, you know, and polishing and reworking things, if I haven't 
then I might sort of spend a bit of time planning, deciding what next thing I need to write. I, I'll just run out of energy very quickly. I think that early morning two-hour thing actually just sucks at me dry. So after that, it's admin, it's emails, it's things like um, arranging to do something uh, to do with promoting the book or, um, you know, that might be a tiny thing, nothing special. So just kind of admin um, and I'm usually done by about four and back on the housework um, and the interacting with the family, which I won't, who I would avoided all day. So, you know, it's kind of time to be a bit sociable and I never do any writing things in the evening. I just can't. Even though you can't write in the evening, are you still slightly consumed by your book? Is it ticking away there or are you pretty good at just separating those two parts of your life no i think when i've stopped i've stopped and i just won't think about it um i mean occasionally it'll be you know that's a really great thing because suddenly a a solution will present itself and i'll have to scribble it down but even if it's a really good one and i scribble it down and i want to pursue it i won't because i think i just do write so much better in the morning and i've discovered that pursuing those things at night when i come to look at them the next day they just haven't got that uh, zing that that comes for me in the morning. When did you discover that you were much more of a, a morning writer? Uh, pretty much early on, I think, um, because for me, um, having children, it's, it's always been the quietest time. It's been the freshest time I found that and I think also I found that once I talk to people, once I've had a long conversation with a person, the writing is never as good. It's like I think some of the energy that I put into writing will go into um, interacting with people. So um, in the morning, if I can kind of get to my desk without talking to someone, the better the writing will be. So um, I've always sort of left the morning interactions with the with the children when they were younger to my partner, and then because he's a musician and would do he I would do the evenings, you know, as a sort of rough plan. So I think I've always just known avoid people, write, and then give all my energy to people the rest of the time. Ha- what what are you happy with getting done for a day? Have you got a specific word count in mind? Is it more a case of just pushing on your story? Are you working to a tight plan? I don't work to a tight plan. I can't. It just um, it just kills off any sort of spontaneity to my writing. I write. Um, I mean, ideally, in my mind, I've got yeah, a thousand words in one day is great. But more what's important to me um, is whether or not I've captured something of what it is I want in the project. So even if it is only 400, 300 words, if if they feel exactly right and they don't feel forced um, and they don't feel boring to me, I'm, I'm happy enough with that. Well, I was about to ask you, how perfect do those words need to be then? They don't have to be sentence perfect, but they have to be, um, they have, I suppose they have to have enough, they have enough layers and metaphor or kind of storytelling magic to them, I suppose. Uh, But I don't mind if they're not 
perfect on a sentence level at all, because I think that will just come as I rewrite. Now, just one last thing that's kind of on the day and on the the writing space. Uh, listeners to the show can get quite into their 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 tech. So, uh, what writing software are you on? And um, I mean, this is this is bold. Uh, what what font opinions do you have, Harriet? <laughs> right. Well, my um, writing software is so basic. I don't even use Word. Actually, I use the free. Um, whatever it is, Apache Office thing, uh, which you can convert to Word. So, and I just use that. Um, and I use quite a lot of comment. So I'll have I have my text on the page, and and then I'll have a lot of comments, mostly saying this is rubbish. You need to develop this. Um, boring. But I find that really helps having those down the side because can't always see them on the screen. But if I want to see what my comments are, I can. So that is as basic as the tech is. Um, font, I'm totally Times New Roman um, and double spaced. I just have to be. It doesn't look like writing to me if it's anything more modern. Um, and if it's more complicated, it just irritates me. Um, I have been known to change when I want to read something through that um, I need a fresh eye for. I might change it to Comic Sans or Arial or something just so it's all on a different place on the page. It just it's got a different sort of level of volume to it when I'm reading. That does help freshen me up. But I can't take my work seriously unless it's in Times New Roman. The other comments thing that you mentioned, is that you writing those? Yes. <laughs> when, when, do you, when do you write those? Whenever I read through what I've done. So I don't do it as I go along unless something really occurs to me that I think, oh, I've just mentioned, I don't know, his desk. I must remember to put that in an earlier scene. I might put a note in there. But mostly it's on a second read through when I'm not ready to sort of change anything, but I'm thinking yeah, that's not developed enough or this isn't interesting enough or whatever. I mean, they tend to be negative comments, but um, that sort of just helps me push things along a bit. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have 
and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We've got more from Harriet in just a sec. Uh, If you're enjoying the show, by the way, it's my weekly interruption to prompt you towards becoming a backer at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. If you've learned anything along the way in over 200 episodes now, there's perhaps even slightly change the way that you tell your stories. If it's aided things at all, you can help the show out, help us keep bringing you these episodes as often as we can with some of the biggest authors around. So many huge names on the list for this year. Uh, To help us out with that, all it takes is a couple of dollars every month by becoming a backer on the Patreon. For that, you get our eternal thanks, obviously. Uh, You get the knowledge that you're helping us carry on you get merch and there is also more bonus content for you on there there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show to make that happen become a backer at patreon.com forward slash writers routine let's get back to it with harriet klein then this week running through her writing day in this part we talk about the new novel this shining life and how it came about also her route to getting published and we pick things up talking about her work part-time work as a registrar and how that inspires her writing. On those days, I'm lucky enough to only write uh, work as a registrar two days a week. I do that Monday and Friday. So that works out as a lovely bookend, actually, to my writing week. So I do um, my work at the register office, which is a fantastically interesting and yet not terribly taxing job, or at least it wasn't until the pandemic hit. So that's, you know, I get to see lots of people. I get to see colleagues. I get to see people from all walks of life in all states of being. You know, they've seen, they've just um, come in to register a death. So they might be really upset or they might be doing a wedding and they might be full of joy or not. Uh, Some weddings aren't full of joy. So I get to see all sorts of lovely emotional states and lots of people. um, And I know what I'm doing when I don't know what I'm doing when I'm writing. So that's a really nice start to the week. And then I go into my, and I've got three days of going into my writing world. And then when I'm tired out and exhausted with that, I go back to the thing I know what, how to do and to the, to the fun of meeting people again. Um, and then I have a weekend off. So it's actually really nice um, full week's routine, actually. Just on being a registrar, does that make sense that you have that job uh, from how you've always been? Uh, as in, you know, have you always kind of felt that you've been a people person and you got this job and it just it makes perfect sense. This is what I am meant to do. Yes. I mean, I never planned to be a registrar. Um, I, I got it as a temporary sort of stopgap while I was trying to decide what I was going to do and how I was going to work out being a writer. But for me, it fits in perfectly because it's actually quite prescriptive. There's ways there's only one way you can register a birth and there's rules you know you can't get married unless certain rules are followed and the marriage has to follow certain rules um and for me that is extremely restful compared to writing where there's no rules so um once i kind of realized i had this and yes i do i've always felt like i'm a people person and i've always enjoyed meeting and observing people and there's no better place really than the register office for that um and yet at the same time i do find people really exhausting and interactions exhausting 
Um, and so there's something really nice about the fact that the interactions you get at the register office are brief. Um, actually, you know, once you've done the job with them, that's it. So it just works out perfectly for the amount of energy I've got and for inspiration, really. Uh, I'd like to kind of touch on the, the, the process of you being published, if that's okay. I was speaking to someone I know recently who's kind of writing a book and and she had written a certain amount, but she was struggling to know what to do with it when she'd finished the book, how to get it to someone who might be able to say yes or to say no to her. Um, how, you had written a lot. You'd written short stories. You've been on like on the radio, on the BBC, and then you've got this debut novel. So when you had finished that novel, um, how did you know, here's what I need to do with it. Here's, here might, this might give it a chance of getting it on the shelves. Um, I mean, I suppose, you know, you just keep looking around at what what it is that everybody does. And I just, um, you know, I'd read so many things is, first of all, you um, send it, you know, you make your query letter and then you send it to the agent and all of that. So I just kind of followed that routine. I mean, I'm very lucky. I'm in a fantastic writing group. So I would say even before you send anything out, get yourself your peer support. Um, so get them reading and criticising and um, enjoying the book that you've written. I think that's really important is, you know, get other eyes on it that aren't necessarily in the industry um, and that you can discuss it with. So, you know, I I had five or six people all who've read the book and had various opinions on it and I changed according to some of them, the work. And they were also able to say to me, yes, it's ready. You have written it, you know, because sometimes you think you've written a, a complete manuscript, but actually you've missed out loads of kind of information and stuff that you don't know uh, because it's in your head. So they were able to say, no, it completely reads from beginning to end. You've got it. It's ready to go. Um, so I think that's a really important first step. And then I did spend quite a lot of time looking up how to write a query letter and what an elevator pitch was um, and what you know and thinking about how to you know who to compare my book to um, uh, so that you could say oh it's a bit like Olive Kitteridge and a bit like the um, the curious dog of uh, in the night time so uh, the curious incident of the dog in the night time so those were the two things I decided I'd compare it to I got myself an elevator pitch I decided um, to say a little bit about myself in relation to the book and I kind of set that out in a query letter that I was really pleased with that I thought sounded interesting and serious um, and compelling and I sent that and then I made a list, a massive list of agents and I chose my favourite ones and went for the favourite ones first um, and luckily uh, got replies pretty quickly. So I was really lucky in that respect. So for the agents quickly, where, how did you shortlist those? What made an agent your favourite? Um, they had to represent authors that I admired. They... Um, that's basically it, really. Um, so it was. I, I looked at my favourite books. I went to the acknowledgements, looked at who their agents were, um, and chose those agents. Um, and uh, that was basically how I did it. And um, um, 
And in fact, the agent, my agent, Claire Cornville, she said, this book will fit in with what we've got on uh, our list. So it's also, you've got to be realistic about what you've got. There's, you know, if, you, if you're writing literary fiction, there's no point in um, trying to uh, send it to an agent who mostly represents crime writers, you know. So your book's got to fit in with their list. Now, I, I promise we will get to the book in just a sec. Just one more little thing to pick on that. Uh, when you've been accepted by an agent, uh, I think many people would think, right, I'm on easy street now. This will get done. I can brush my hands of it and just sit back. Um, how much of that job is then done? Like when you've got the agent, how, what is left for you to do to try and get this out there? And, and how long did it take for you? Um, well, I mean, I didn't know anything about how what the agent really does next. That was a bit of mystery to me. So I sort of did sit back. But what you do? But what happened was, first of all, I did. Um, my agent said, "Well, this is what I think you need to do to the book." So there was probably about six or eight weeks um, rewriting, little bit of editing, um, which I did for my agent, so that she said, "Yes, now I think it's ready for submission." And then that was really when I realised, oh, no, this is it. If if people, you know, she's going to send it out to people, to publishers, and if they don't want it, that will be it for this book. So that was actually the scariest moment. So obviously finding that actually somebody did want it was, was also the most wonderful moment. Um, and then straight after that, you're straight into editing because they say we'll want it if you do this. I was present at the death of a very dear friend um, and it was very well it was an awful experience it was the saddest day of my life um, and it was very very intense and very humbling um, and what I remember from that experience was that I, I was actually standing at the bedside and I was watching my friend die and there was no way to get away from it. There was no way to hide what was going on. The only thing I could do was accept it and what and let each moment unfurl whatever that did to me. And it was horrible, but there was something incredibly authentic about it. And it was sort of, there was like a moment I felt that I was purely alive because I was truly, truly living that moment, um, even though it was awful and I wanted to avoid it because I couldn't. I was just absolutely alive. And that experience stayed with me, but it only really stayed with me for about a month. And I felt really different during that month. I felt like I'd seen a truth. I'd seen something very pure about what it meant to be alive. And then after about a month, I started sort of getting back in my old habits of not being quite alive and not being truly authentic in the way that I had been when I was present at the death. And I found myself thinking, oh, this is awful. I've lost my authenticity. It's like I've, I've lost my friend and now I'm losing this this you know, the one thing that he gave me, I'm lo losing as well. Um, and it was, you know, that was really upsetting. And I was thinking about that. And then I was watching all the people around me grieving for this friend. And I started to notice that I thought, actually, this is happening to everyone. That as we're going through the grieving process, we are 
all sort of losing some sense of what that really means and what it means to be alive. And then it was a little bit after that that I thought, I want to write about this and I want to write about the different ways that people grieve and the different ways that people are truly alive. Because I felt that in the first sort of month of grief, everybody was very alive to their feelings. And then after that, they weren't. And I thought, what stops people not being alive to their feelings? And I started to think, I wanted to explore a number of people um, and all the different things that stop them being alive to what's going on. And that was when I thought this is going to be, I'm going to write a book and it's going to be a multi-voiced narrative. You've got that idea then. This is what you want to explore. You need to harness a plot from that though. So when you'd had that that initial wave of feeling about it being a multi-voiced narrative, what did you do to settle on a plot, to settle on your characters and what they would do? Um, well, I think because I'd written short stories up until then, um, I decided that I would write a short story for each character. I'd write one for before the death and one for after the death, showing the different reactions. That was my plan. And I started to do it and it didn't work. And I, and I realised it didn't work because it didn't have a plot. Um, and I, so I knew that I had this one central character that I was just writing much more of. And he kept coming to me. And this was this little boy called Ollie. And he kept coming to me in tiny little, almost like flash fiction um, extracts. And he kept coming to me outside the time frame of everybody else so they were all doing a before and after and he was doing something completely different and I thought okay I'm gonna have to use him to link it and I was still thinking about this gift of what it means to be alive that I discovered when I was present at the death and I was and I was thinking about gifts um and then I thought okay so I'm gonna have Ollie working something out about gifts and that was really when the plot came to me and I thought it has to come from this boy and he's going to link everybody together because he's going to be right at the centre of this family and everyone else is going to be having their experience but he's having his particular grief experience that draws everyone in. So it was never a kind of a plot that went this happened you know and then there's an instigation point and then there's you know a midpoint. There was never like that. It was um, it was a big mess from beginning to end, and I don't really know how I managed to get it into a coherent story, to be quite frank. Well, that slightly answers the next one then, because I, I guess how much do you need to know about what's happening in your 300 pages before you sit down and write the first one? Um, I prefer not to know at all, actually. I prefer to um, know that it's going to end up with you know i knew that the family were going to fall apart and then come together again um and so i knew there was that shape but i think if i know too much i'm i can't write without it sort of already being decided in my head and that just doesn't i don't get interested somehow i think i'm interested in where the writing takes me at the time so 
I think it's better for me not to know where it's going. You mentioned your characters here, but with Ollie, uh, he's he's the young lad who's kind of driving this story. When you're writing a novel like this, that is, it's all about the present day. There's somewhat about searching for the meaning of life in there. Uh, it's quite easy to fall into cliche with the type of characters that you're writing, and we need those to be authentic to keep us going. How did you make these unlike any others? That's a. I I don't know. I suppose what I did was just try to enter into their mind um, in their very, very particular experience. So I think that the way I write, I'm always trying to go, I I think I use a lot of um, physical detail. um, And also, I think I use quite a lot of um, so physical details, as in, you know, the pattern on a teapot or um, the sound of water falling. So, you know, I'm very aware of all the senses, but I'm also very aware of what it feels like to be in a body. So I suppose, you know, there's there's one moment where someone's crawling under a table um, and she's an older woman and she can feel her cheeks falling forward because her skin's quite loose. Um, and I think being really physically in the body of a person and being really sort of aware of their surroundings, you know, the feel of the carpet underneath your knees or the smell of a waterfall as you walk past it, I think that that keeps it from being cliche because it's so specific to what's happening in that book. It's described as being... Uh, wonderfully funny and also and also aching aching at times it's, it's about love that all comes down to tone then when you're writing a story like this it's it's all about the voice that you're telling it in i know you've said it was it's multi-voice but how much did you think about the, the the tone that you were writing this story in um i suppose i always like to have a little bit of humor uh, it tends to be on the dark side, but I, um, I suppose what I'm listening to when I'm writing is how um, is the rhythm of it. So if I'm feeling that I've gone very much into a slow um, and sort of sad place, I'm kind of aware of how far I can go before it needs to be lifted again. So um that so i think i will quite often use dialogue to lift something but i'll also use humor to, so i'll go you know i can there's definitely some really sad moments in this book i mean it's about someone dying um but within that there are moments where it's where it is just the it's just humans interacting and inevitably that's always funny at some point because people people just are so I think I'm aware of um, the rhythm of the piece but I'm also just aware of how to keep things not being on one plane really on one emotional plane because life is ups downs fast slow dark light you've spent a lot of time thinking about this um, from 
the terrible kind of situation you found yourself in with your friend and then dedicating 300 pages to these characters kind of looking for the meaning or like a meaning of life i guess i guess the final question has to be rather philosophically what have what have you figured out about why we're all here <laughs> um we are here to be together to connect to each other so a lot of this book is about how people are not connecting to each other, how they're not listening to what is happening to Ollie, the youngest and most vulnerable character. They've got their own problems. They've got their own ways of dealing with the pain that they're in because of the grief. Um, and those feelings at first turn them away from each other. But somehow together and through Ollie, they come together and they make their connections. And I think that's that is what being alive is, is connecting with other people and not closing yourself down from, uh, and not closing yourself away from love. That is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Harriet Klein for coming on the show. The new book, This Shining Life, is out now. Uh, if you fancy reading it, pick up a copy at your local bookshop if you get a chance. Now, next week, we are with Ellen Alpston talking about her new historical novel, uh, the Tsarina's Daughter. It's based on Catherine the Great of Russia, her daughter, and the prophecy that throws the world apart. Uh, it, it's a really fun take on history. You can hear all about it next week with Ellen on the show. In the meantime, you can support us, become a backer at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Uh, you can get in touch on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Twitter, we are at WritersPod, and the contact page over at writersroutine.com is just waiting for you to click and type on it. Uh, in the meantime, I'll see you next week on Friday with Ellen Alpston on the show. Until then, bye. <laughs>